Okay, let's pray together before we open God's word. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us and you care for us and you meet us right where we are. Whatever we're going through in our life, wherever we are, whatever week we've had, whatever challenges are before us, whatever great joys we've experienced, Lord, you orchestrated it and you know it all. And so as we come together today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as you have done through worship. Now do that as we look at your word. We have nothing to say unless it comes from your word. And we can't absorb the truth unless you open our hearts. So do that, Lord. Those areas of our heart that are hidden and hardened, I pray, Lord, that you would do your work to soften them and and, and reveal to us what we need to know from your word today. Be with us, we pray, and we, we've, we've, we've uh, sung together, and we've interacted together, and now we want to pray together as Jesus, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power glory forever. Amen. Okay, I want to begin with a question. It's a question that every person, regardless of age or stage, every person has to answer, and it's a question based on an event that every person will have to go through. Here's a question. What will happen, what will be your personal experience the second after you die? What will be your personal experience the second after you die. Now, granted, that's a pretty heavy question, isn't it? There are some questions in life that just aren't that heavy. Most of the questions we deal with are pretty lightweight. For instance, if I said after the service, we're all going to go out to eat together, and uh, are you feeling a hamburger or are you feeling tacos, right? How many of you would say hamburgers? How many of you would say tacos? Tacos won, but we're really not going to go out. That was just an illustration, all right? If I said after we go out, we're going to go get some ice cream, and you can have chocolate. They're out of everything except chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. How many would say chocolate? Okay. The rest of you really must not like ice cream, but how many would, we'll go ahead. How many would say vanilla? Vanilla. Vanilla. And then how many would say strawberry? Okay, now it's a bummer that they don't have like chocolate, raspberry, truffle, and uh, Graham Central Station and all that. But, but we're going to live, right? Because those are just some basic questions that we deal with every now. Some questions are more serious. Choosing the right college for some of you in that age group. That's fairly significant. And that's the place, more than likely, you're going to meet friends for life, make decisions 
you're going to make decisions that's going to put you on the path for the rest of your life. And many in college will make up their mind about God and who he is and how they're going to interact with him the rest of their life. Choosing a vocation, that's a fairly important issue to deal with, isn't it? What are you going to invest? Think about this. What are you going to invest your life in for the next 40 or 50 years? What are you going to wake up passionate about every morning? Fairly, fairly significant. Choosing a husband or a wife. I'd say that's a pretty serious question. You got to get that one right. The wrong answer can mess up things for a lot of people for a long time. So we make decisions every day. Some are as irrelevant as a taco or a hamburger, and some are as weighty as who we're going to spend the rest of our life with, but none is as important as this one. What will you experience the, the second after you die? Now, since death comes in a variety of of ways and any season of our life, that question is as relevant for the nine-year-old as is the 90-year-old. What you experience the, the nanosecond after you die. Some people for sure ignore that question, out of sight, out of mind mentality. Others answer it in a variety of ways. When some would ask the, be asked the question, what would you experience the second after you die? Many people would say, nothing. It's over. And, and this is based on a, a life philosophy that is without God, that there is no God, or if he does exist, he really is not interested in my little life. Everybody just lives and dies, and that's that. A lot of people who have that philosophy, that theology... Others conclude that some will go to heaven. By the way, this is a popular one. Some will go to heaven, but those who don't will just cease to be. In theology, this is called annihilationism. And it's making a comeback among many uh, theologians. The unbeliever, this view says, the unbeliever upon their death will either go through a period of time of of suffering, or they just simply exist to be. God will annihilate them, body and soul, and they are no more. Others will say, no, there's a heaven and there's a hell. But for those who hold to both heaven and hell, there are a variety of ways and ideas that they would believe how to get to heaven and how to avoid hell. Now, regarding this eternity issue you may have a bunch of questions, and you, you may say, you know what, I, I'm just not sure, and that's fine, and we want to help you answer those questions. In fact, that's one of the reasons we're doing this series called Relevant Faith, to answer those questions. You have a sincere questions. There are sincere questions about our faith. Is the Bible reliable? We're staking our eternity on this book we call the Bible. Is it reliable? Does God really exist? There's a question you have to answer. What about absolute truth? If absolute truth doesn't exist, then everything's up for grabs. Why is there suffering in the world? Are heaven and hell real? Those are, those are real issues, and we're going to be talking about that during the relevant 
faith series, but let's go back to that question, what happens the moment after you die? Because in our study through the book of 1 John, we're going to consider the person that can answer that question for you. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 is our passage today. 1 John chapter 5, 6 through 12. Remember this letter was written by a man who served with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was a first-hand witness of the things that Jesus said and did. John wrote this letter to several local churches, and he had five things that he wanted to drill home. There were these things in his letter. You've written letters, you've written emails, you've done correspondence, and you always have some things you want to share. And so John says, I want you to know these five things. First of all, I want to encourage true Christian belonging. I want to talk about community. We've been talking about that during the series. I want to help believers experience true joy, regardless of circumstance, regardless of stuff going on in their life. I want them to experience true joy, to help believers avoid falling into patterns of sin. John says we're going to sin. If we say we don't sin, we're a liar and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And John says you don't want to fall into patterns of sin, to guard believers from false teaching, and then to allow believers to know with certainty that they are children of God and will be children of God forever. Throughout his letter, throughout all the themes, John always brings it back to this person of Jesus. How can a person have a relationship with Jesus? How can a person have their eternity and their life changed by Jesus? And John's going to tell us about that in this passage that we're going to look at today. He's been telling us about Jesus all along. But again, John is coming back. He always comes back to the person of Jesus. So what I want to do for us today, I want to read the passage so we get it in our mind. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go through it and see what John has to say as, as we drill down uh, on this passage. So first, let's get this in mind. Now, the first thing I want to do is when, you, when I read this, you're going to hear the word testify or testimony, I think, about eight times. So that's a significant concept or truth that John is putting forth in this passage. I mean, in these few verses, eight times the word testify or testimony. And if you look at your notes, I hope you have your notes uh, with you because you're going to use those uh, today. To make a testimony or testify means to make a de declaration for the pur purpose of establishing a fact. So John is using this portion of his letter to make a declaration about Jesus to establish a fact. He is, trying to, he is trying to drive a stake in the ground regarding the person of Jesus. So testify, testimony, over and over, eight times. So listen to that word uh, as I read chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. John says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If 
we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this testimony of God, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself, or some translations, in his heart. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Then look at 1 John 5, 11 and 12. These are some verses you need to know. This is the testimony. That God has given us what? Eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. All right, let's work our way uh, through this passage and see what John is saying. First of all, John wants to again establish the historical fact that Jesus Christ walked on it. We we call it the historicity of Jesus. And so he says, this is he who came John is saying there in those words, Jesus was a person, a real person who walked on this earth. He is establishing the the history of Jesus, that he was a man who lived in a place and time, and he came. And when John says that, he's not just saying, and and he came and that's it. He, he He wants to draw our attention to all the things Jesus did when he came. All the things he said, that's what he's been talking about in his book. Remember, uh, back in verse 1, he says, I'm writing to you. I want to tell, I was with Jesus. I saw Jesus. I touched Jesus. I want to tell you the things firsthand that he said and the things he did. And so John is saying, and he came, and the one who came is this person, Jesus Christ. We've been saying all along, when you say the name Jesus Christ, that is the gospel in a nutshell. When you say the name Jesus, that is the human name of Jesus. That's the name he was given at his birth. So when you see the name Jesus, you just think he was fully man, fully man. The name Christ says he is the anointed one. He's the one that God sent. It was in God's plan all along. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In Hebrew, the word Christ is the Messiah. In Greek, Christ. And so when you hear the name Jesus Christ, we are saying he's a man of history. He was the one God sent for us to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He is the anointed one. Now, it's interesting because John says in this verse that Jesus came, Jesus Christ came by water and blood. What in the world is John talking about when he says water and blood? Two things. First of all, when he talks about the water, he is talking about Jesus' baptism. So what John is doing here, he is putting the earthly, he's bracketing the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry began when John started walking with him. It was commenced at his baptism. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, that was when it all started. And John also wants us to remember there that when Jesus was baptized, remember what happened? Voice came from heaven, this is my son with whom what? 
I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit came and lit on Jesus and landed on Jesus. And so you have right there the Trinity, God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit uh, landing on Jesus, and Jesus there in human flesh. And so John wants us to say, here is God's work in the flesh. His work started by his baptism. Water and blood. What do you think blood would be referring to? Yeah, the cross. Not only was it a bloody ordeal, but in Scripture, blood represents death. He gave his blood. He gave his life. And so John there wants us to remember that Jesus came, not only his ministry started, not only his baptism, but it ended in his death or his earthly ministry ended in this great work that he did for us on the cross. And so when John says that, he wants us to remember all the things he's been teaching us in these first four chapters. That Jesus came to take on the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus came to pay the penalty of sin by his death, by his blood, so we didn't have to. Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So we can answer that question, what will happen that second after I die? Now, John used the word blood and water. It's kind of interesting the way he didn't do that anywhere else. But he uses the word blood and water for a specific reason. Anytime you're reading scripture and you think, what in the world is the writer writing? You go back and study and you determine what the first readers would have understood. And it's very important here because John not only says it here at the first part of this verse, but he repeats it. Not only by water, not by the water only, but the water and the blood. Why would he say that to this group? Heresy in that day, remember one of his reasons for writing this is to deal with false teaching, and one of the false teachings of that day was called Gnosticism. And there are a lot of facets of Gnosticism, but basically the soul is good and matter is evil. The spirit is good and matter is evil. And there was this segment of Gnosticism during that time put forth by a guy named Serenthus. And Serenthus said that Jesus was just a man. He was born, no virgin birth. He's just a man. And then at his baptism, the Spirit came on him. And so after his baptism, he kind of functioned as fully God, fully man. But then the Spirit left him right before his death. Serenthus was putting this out, and people were buying it. And John is saying, No, no, no. That's not what happened. He was not only only by water, not only his baptism, but by water and the blood. John is saying the whole life of Christ, the whole ministry of Christ, his death included, he was fully God and he was fully man. He's the one who came to die for us on the cross. God himself died for us on the cross. Then John says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, who declares this truth to establish a fact. 
because the Spirit is truth. Now, what's John bringing the Spirit into this? Well, two things. First of all, jot down Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So let's break that down. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So John is saying the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So you have the baptism, you have the death, and now when he introduces the Spirit, what do you have? You have the resurrection, right? So now you have the full work of Jesus. His baptism commences his ministry. His death was the culmination of his ministry. And then the Spirit raised him from the dead. But John also says, this verse tells us, that not only the Spirit raised us from the dead, but it's the Spirit who raises us from the dead. It's the Spirit who lives in us. And so to understand who the person of Jesus is, it's the Spirit. Remember Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead just as Jesus was dead in the tomb, and the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that raises us from the spiritual dead to new life. And we have that spirit living in us. That is the spirit of truth. And so there's one day, if you're a believer, you know what this day was in your life. I don't know if it was when you were young. I don't know if it happened yesterday. I don't know when it happened. But there was a day and you said, man, I finally get it. I finally understand. Why didn't I get that before? Why did, I'll have people come and they'll say, you know what? I grew up in a church where I never heard the gospel. Now that could be the case, but what I think probably happened is the gospel was shared, but you just didn't hear it. But when the Spirit is at work in your heart, you understand it for the first time. The Spirit of truth. And so when the Spirit comes in and says, you are mine, you've always been mine. And today is this brand new day of your spiritual life. He's the spirit of truth. And you say, ah, I get it. Jesus came. Jesus had this great ministry. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Jesus was raised from the dead. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead raises me from the dead. And that spirit lives in me. And I can live this life now that pleases God, not because of who I am, but because of who God is and the fact that he lives in me, in my heart. Now, what John's doing is building a case about Jesus. And so he's saying there are these three witnesses about Jesus. There's his baptism, started his ministry. There's his death, where he died for us on the cross. There's the spirit who rose him from the dead and raises us from the dead. There are the three witnesses. So John says in in the next verses, the spirit, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, uh, because the spirit is truth. For these three, right, the water, the blood, and the spirit, these three, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, 
and the blood, and these three agree. Now, John is building this case for Jesus, and he's going to now move to an application, and here's what he does. Back in the Old Testament, you had to have two or three witnesses in a court of law for someone to be uh, accused, or someone to be convicted of a crime. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. By the way, that's the basis for our law today. And so a good lawyer is not only going to have a lay witness or an eyewitness, right? You need more than one witness. So maybe you have two or three eyewitnesses, but if you only have one eyewitness, what do you do? You bring in another witness called a, an expert witness, and an expert witness can say, yeah, when you shoot that gun, that particular gun, and that particular ammunition that was in that gun, that powder is on the hand, and so there was only one witness, but the powder was on the hand. Then you have a character witness to demonstrate this person's character. So even today... A good lawyer is going to have two or three witnesses to convict a person of a crime. So here's what John does. This is interesting. He makes this argument. It's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. Lesser to the greater. John's saying this. If we depend on the testimony of man, three witnesses, two or three witnesses, to free or convict a person, if we actually are going to send a person to jail or set him free based on two or three witnesses, if we take that testimony that seriously, then why wouldn't we take God's testimony even more seriously? Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son has the testimony in himself, has the gospel, has the truth right in his heart. The spirit is truth, and the spirit lives within us, so we have this testimony right in in us. Whoever does not believe God has made him what? A liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now just think about that. God is all-knowing. God is, God is omnipresent. God sees everything. He speaks the truth, and God has given us this testimony about Jesus. And John is saying, if you don't accept the testimony that God has given, the things he's given you to prove Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, then you are basically saying, God, you're a liar. Truth isn't in you. I'm not going to accept what you say. I, I know better. We make God out to be a liar. Why is, uh, 
Why is not trusting in Jesus such a big deal? Well, our eternity depends on it. And the God of the universe we just called a liar because we are not willing to accept the truth that he gives us. John has been arguing all the time, if we say there's a God, so we're going to do this relevant faith series, does God exist? And you can conclude God exists, right? But still not be a believer. Now you've got to start there. But John is saying, God is the one who gives us this testimony about his son. Just uh, flip back to John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar, but he, John's, John is, if you're just starting with us during the series, John is just black and white. Is the truth or a lie? Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who he denies the Father and the Son. Wait a minute. You just denied Jesus. You didn't deny the Father. John said, no, it's a package deal. No one, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So John says, here's the deal. Here's the bottom line. Look at verses 11 and 12 back in chapter 5. This is the testimony. John's saying, this is the truth. These are the things I am putting before you to establish the fact. Here's the testimony. God has given us eternal life. I want that eternal life. I want to know the moment after I die, I wake up to eternal life, right? How do I know that? This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. It just is pretty clear, isn't it? You have Jesus, you have life eternal life, and that eternal life starts now. You don't have Jesus, you don't have life. What's going to happen? The moment after you die, it all depends on that question, all depends on the answer you give to the person of Jesus. Have you trusted in Jesus alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? All right, here's what I want to do. To wrap up, I want you to take your sermon notes. hope everyone has your sermon notes. We're going to do a little thing here together and turn it on the back and turn it where it says the bridge, right? What I want to do is this. I want to explain to you a way to understand the gospel. If you don't understand it, I'm going to try to explain it in a way you, you understand it. If you do understand it, then follow along with me. Take some notes because I'm going to challenge you to share the gospel with two people this week, right? Now you can, if you say that's a bit of a stretch for me, then you're just going to practice sharing on a person, okay? And then if you do, I'll take you for ice cream next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that, all right? All right, so we're going we're gonna to go. For, now, if, you, if you've gone through Living Grounded, uh, it's a discipleship uh, program we have here, a discipleship curriculum. There is a chapter where I give 
where we give two ways to share the gospel. So if you've gone through Living Ground, you can go back to that and check it out. So I'm just going to give you one way. It's called the bridge illustration. And you can take your notes, and then I'm going to challenge you to practice, let's just say, practice it with two people this coming week. Deal? Deal. I'm going to take those non-nods for yes. All right, here we go. The bridge illustration. I have used this illustration. I cannot tell you the number of times I've done this on the back of a, on a napkin, piece of paper, uh, on an iPad, or on the back of those uh, pla- uh, paper placemats, right? All right, here we go. The Bible says that man is here and God is over here. Right underneath uh, that gap there, jot down Isaiah 59.2. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated, or have made a separation, some translations have separated you from God, made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So here we have a situation. Man's on this side, God's on the other side, and there's this great gap in the middle. Next verse to jot down is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have Isaiah 59, this gap, and then Romans 3 says, try as we, try as we will, we can't bridge the gap. So you know, we can do the church thing. Well, we'll go to church every week, but we fall short on our own. Uh, we'll, be a good, we'll be a good neighbor, but we fall short. We'll give a lot of money. Yeah, we'll give a lot of money. Can't buy what only Jesus offers. We try our best and we fall short. An illustration you can use here, we've done it many times, is the Grand Canyon. If we load it up, forget the ice cream, let's load up and go to the Grand Canyon, right? We'll jump across it. You might jump further than me, I might jump further than you. But I'm not going to care who jumped the farthest when they pick up our bodies from the bottom of the canyon. We can't jump across the canyon. We cannot, on our own, have a relationship with the living God. So you got Isaiah 59, 2, our sins separate us from God. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64, I put that one in there because this says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You say, well, look, if I try really hard, if I really do good things, if I try my best. No, Isaiah says our best effort on our best day is like a polluted garment to God. It, we miss the mark so much. Our best effort on our best day still puts us like right here, right? And it just doesn't register on God's perfect standard. We're separated from God. We fall short. Our best effort can't get us across the gap. That's not good news, is it? It's bad news. But here's the good news. God 
loved us so much. Romans 5, 8 is the next verse. God loved us so much that while we were still sinners, while our back was turned on him, while we couldn't get across on our own, Christ died for us. So the only way we can get across is Jesus, is the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins and mine, and he bridged the gap. This is the way we get across to God. And you know what? It's just not a good way. It's just not one of the many ways. It is the only way. Here's the next verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Amen. Now, why can Jesus make that claim? There is no other way. Because he's the only one who is fully God. He's the only one who we call Jesus the Christ. He's the only one who is fully God and what? Fully man. Being fully man, he can die on our behalf. Being fully God, he doesn't have to die. He's perfect. The sinless God-man, Jesus the Christ, is the only way you can have a relationship with the living God. What about all the religions and all their sincerity? Jesus said, I am the only way to have a relationship with the Father. What's going to hap- happen the moment after you die? It's all about Jesus. How do, how, how, do, how do we do that? So that's what happened. How do we apply that to our lives? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So we have Isaiah 59, 2, Romans 3, 23, Isaiah 64, 6, Romans 5, 8, John 14, 6, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. By grace you've been saved through faith. We trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. And there's one more verse, and I want to show, show you one more thing. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If we confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's a heart that one confesses or believes and is justified, and the mouth that one confesses and is saved. Now, you don't have to use all those verses as you practice this with another person. But here are verses that walk you through the gap. You can't get across. Your best efforts don't get you across. But God paved the way for you by sending his son Jesus to die for you on the cross. Now, there's one other thing. What is... What is, for by grace you're saved through faith. What is this faith? What does that look like? I believe there are like four things that really help us understand what saving faith is. Saving faith. Now I want to tell you the difference between saving faith and daily faith. 
Daily faith is, God, you're going to help me through the day. You're going to give me the things I need. Saving faith is just one thing. I am placing my faith in Jesus alone as the only way. After we have saving faith, then we apply daily faith. But let's just talk about trusting in Jesus alone. I think there are four things that help us do that. And I use the acronym CAN'T spelled with a K. So we can't get to God on our own. Here's how we can. The K is knowledge. That's what that's what's John has been telling us through, through his book, right? Jesus came. He is fully man. He's fully God. He's the Christ. He's the one sent by God. You need to have, you need to have that knowledge, but knowledge alone doesn't save. The Bible says even the demons believe that Jesus was a Christ, and the demons certainly are not Christians. The second, the A, is agreement. Not only do I, uh, not only do I know that Jesus came, died on a cross for my sins, I, I, I get the picture, but I agree. I agree that he's fully God, fully man. I agree that he's the one who came to die for me on the cross. And then, the end, I believe, is need. I believe there's some point in your life where God just establishes through his spirit a need in your life. Sometimes, sometimes people go through a health issue and they realize just how vulnerable they are. And they realize that, you know, they're not going to live forever. God uses that for the need. Sometimes uh, people go through challenges at school and say, man, I can't, I can't do this on my own. They need God's help. Sometimes people are very successful. I've talked to a lot of people like this. They're very successful. They've achieved everything that they set out to achieve. And then they get there and they say, what? This it? I don't feel any different. This is what I've given my life for, and I'm still empty inside. So God establishes a need. And then the T is trust. I trust in Jesus alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and so I am trusting in him as the only way, as the only one who has provided a way from where I am to have a personal relationship with the living God.